want to thank you for listening today. This is Ken Feith with the Metro Archives. Uh, this is our podcast, Back in the Day. Today we have a very special guest, Todd Van Beck. He's going to talk with us about embalming practices in the Civil War and later and things he's observed in his study and research of the topic. So, Todd, would you lead us off? Well, thank you, Ken. A pleasure to be here with you. And I just want to be an information gatherer. This subject has interested me for about five decades. Wow. I started out in funeral service as a career right out of high school. And then as I began to study, first of all, the funeral of Abraham Lincoln Hmm. and saw what a massive ceremony that was. It lasted 20 days. 20 days? Yeah, the funeral procession went 1,700 miles. Good. And that funeral was not so much a—no human being probably deserves that kind of a (laughs) send-off. But it was, I think, a corporate reaction— to four years of catastrophe. Sure. And when words fail, people turn to rituals. Hmm. And words absolutely could not capture the experiences from 1861 to 1865. Oh, yes. In fact, the sociologists tell us that there was not a family unit in the United States that wasn't affected in a grief experience through that war. So the funeral for Lincoln was, of course, an ethical, moral activity to care for the dead, but I also think it was a ceremonial closure for the Civil War. It was a ritualistic requiem, Mm -hmm. so to speak, Mm -hmm. for the war. And then 25 years later, Jefferson Davis's funeral served the same function Mm -hmm. just a quarter century later. It was the same purpose. Really? Yeah. Oh, sure. They fulfilled the same purpose, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because in its own way, a Davis's funeral was just as impressive and just as theatrical Hmm. as what Lincoln's was. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, we didn't have CNN. We didn't have 24-hour news services. And if people wanted to express their emotions, they had to show up to the event. So I guess, yeah, everybody would have to go or to go to some local event to to express that. Yeah. Yeah. So really the Civil War kind of, obviously that's the biggest thing we'd ever experienced, but— the assassination of a president and all that rolled into it. and If you have what's called in uh, the psychology of grief a death overload, hmm. uh, there will be tremendous societal changes. Yeah. For instance, mm-hmm. a person passes away uh, one at a time here and there. Mm-hmm. That doesn't change much. Mm-hmm. But when you have 600 and some odd thousand die within four years— <laughs> The culture will never be the same. Same thing happened with the flu epidemic in 1918. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where 500,000 people died within, what, 18 months. And so that had social consequences. But I was interested as a funeral director and also as an educator, because I am associated with John A. Gupton College here in Nashville, which Mm -hmm. is one of the oldest mortuary colleges, uh, training centers for up-and-coming funeral directors and embalmers in the country. Um, That's pretty interesting. Yeah, for, for Tennessee, you know. Yeah, yeah. well, it's been here for yeah. years. Most people don't even don't know it's here, but it is here. Mm-hmm. The Gupton family was very and still is very instrumental in the history of Nashville. Uh, William Gupton was the mayor of Nashville How about that? Yeah. Uh, in the oh. 1940s, I believe, and one Gupton was postmaster of Nashville. So I was interested to 
You know, people say in the textbooks, well, 24,000 people died in this battle and 18,000 people died here. There were 32,000 casualties here and all that. But then there was just a gap Mm -hmm. because what was done with those individuals? Uh, Now, we know Lincoln set the National Cemetery System up Hmm. because he was keenly interested in ethical care of the dead. That's interesting. And because of his own experiences, right, he had a severe bereavement right off the bat when the war started. Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, who had been his law clerk in Springfield, was Hmm. shot. He was the first officer to die in the war. And then shortly Hmm. after that, Lincoln's son, Willie, died in the White House. And he had both those decedents embalmed chemically. And hmm. Lincoln, Lincoln was astounded by the outcome of that in that prior to this, care of the dead was kind of a random mm-hmm. hit or miss proposition, right? Because they tried ice and that didn't work very well. Mm-hmm. In the summertime, it could be really uncomfortable, yeah. right? But now these bodies, in Elmer Ellsworth's case, they were able to have a funeral in the East Room. They took him to the um, state capitol in Albany, New York. He laid out Hmm. there. And then three weeks later, they took him to Mechanicsville, New York, for burial. So Lincoln had this idea that that might be something that could be useful to the parents of soldiers who were killed. And so he started through the Quartermaster's Corps. Now, Hmm. this was not— these men did not enlist. Mm-hmm. They were hired by the government hmm. to be mm-hmm. battlefield embalmers. They were called embalming surgeons. And most of them had been surgeons or mm-hmm. pharmacists or, oh, okay. you know, so they were familiar with chemistry what, and yes. so forth. And uh, there's no way to know about this numbers wise, but we figure that there was several thousand officers were much easier to identify on the battlefield. And there were about 12,000 officers killed in, during the war. Hmm. Not all of those officers got preparation to be sent home, but a lot of them did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other thing that came up was families in the north, northern families particularly, could go to their local undertaker and put down $100, and the undertaker would give them what was called an undertaker's token. Hmm. And it was a little coin that had the telegraph code on there for the undertaker. And they would either pin this on their uniform, uh, carry it in their pocket, or sometimes they'd knock a hole in it and put a chain around it and wear it. Some people have stretched a little bit that this was the precursor of the dog tag. But when the grave detail, when the grave registration detail found the undertaker's token, now, again, this was hit and miss. This was sure. not sophisticated mm-hmm. like we have today. But they would, if they could get to a telegraph, they'd telegraph the undertaker. And the undertaker would telegraph back that if you have an embalmer on the battlefield, this body needs to be cared for and sent back. They've paid for it already. So this was the like really the... The infancy of like uh, graves registration or something like that. Well, it was. It, actually, it was. Yeah, it was also yeah. the infancy of prearranging funerals. Prearranging, really? Right? Really, yeah. Where you would pay for this ahead of time. And um, hundreds of bodies, hundreds of soldiers were treated in this manner. And so I put together this program on the assassination and funeral of Lincoln, which 
I've been doing now for 40 years. Mm -hmm. But then also I uh, put together the history of Civil War embalming. And that's been a program that has been given many times here in town by two groups Mm -hmm. who are interested in that. As we were talking earlier, if you can gently, Mm -hmm. and it takes a gentle touch, (laughs) to get people to move from death anxieties Mm -hmm. over to death interest, really remarkable things can happen if they look at this as a way to help mm-hmm. versus to yeah. to scare, <laughs> right? Actually, I gave this program on the embalming to a library down off of Hillsborough Pike, mm-hmm. one of your branches yeah. down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, well, that, that kind of led to this because you had such a fascinating talk, and this whole thing seems to evolve out of— it's interesting that you put so much together out of Lincoln's assassination and then carried it forward. We were talking about, well, here in Nashville, Cornelius and some of the other people here that were active during the Civil War and afterwards, really. Yeah, Cornelius was—W. William R. Cornelius was one of the premier Civil War undertakers. Mm-hmm. We estimate he buried 12,000 people mostly in the National Cemetery, Hmm. right? And uh, he also was very instrumental in the high-profile funerals in Nashville, such as Mrs. James K. Polk, Hmm. uh, President Polk, Andrew Jackson. And then he had a nephew named Finley Doris who had a funeral home out on the West End Mm -hmm. for years uh, across from the Parthenon. So really he was kind of, well, he was the premier here. And to do two presidents and then Mrs. Polk, yeah. 50, 60 years apart. I yeah, mean, right. Uh, it was yeah. quite a remarkable thing. But in uh, those days, and still to this day in some locations, certain groups go to certain funeral homes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so when I started uh, 50 years ago, our funeral home in the Midwest, the funeral home, not my funeral home, but funeral home I was associated with, we buried the archbishops of the city. Right, And it was just this tradition that these Mm -hmm. families went to this particular place, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that gets started that way, and then it's a known quantity, you know? Yeah. uh, But that's pretty interesting about how moving people to an interest in death, I guess, it it has been so changed, I guess, or so so different now. You know, you don't, someone dies and and you don't see anything until the day of the funeral, you know? So, yeah, yeah. Well, as in the Civil War, as in today, funerals anthropologically and sociologically are a truth theorem there. It's a mirror. Hmm. If you look at how people care for their dead, it's going to show you the heights of nobility (laughs) and the heights of respect. And it's also going to show you the other side. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people are going to care for their dead in a consistent manner with how they live their life. Funerals, for good and bad, reflect how people live. So a hmm. hundred years ago, funerals lasted uh, three days, hmm. and now possibly they will last three hours. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so yeah. from a social standpoint, that says a lot in just how our culture has gained some things but mm-hmm. lost mm-hmm. others. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, it seems like, um, well, turn of the century, there was more time to grieve. And, of course, I guess the body was prepared at home. All these things were done at home, they so were. it's much closer. It's much they were. personal, I guess. Well, and the funeral director, for instance, there's some interesting trivia. 
The folding chair was invented by an undertaker. <laughs> really? Right. To use on home funerals. Uh-huh. Because uh-huh. he got tired of running around the neighborhood borrowing R- kitchen chairs, chairs yeah. grounding <laughs> up chairs. The pickup truck was invented for not farmers, but for undertakers to haul all their equipment to a home oh, to put a funeral on. The other piece of trivia you might find interesting is they used to move bodies around in wicker baskets. Hmm. It's just like your wicker lawn furniture, but they look like coffins. <laughs> but they were lightweight. They had long ones for people my size. They had small ones when there'd be a, a, a death of a young person. Mm-hmm. But the American slang that he's a basket case <laughs> came from undertakers using. The that's where that baskets. came from. How that's about where that? it came from. Yeah. That's where it came from. Yeah. You know, that's pretty fascinating. I mean, there's a, this has been a current with, with our society for a long time. You just don't realize parts of it are there, you know? Well, yeah. in the Civil War, I don't think people had the luxury of turning their head and their attention away from the reality of human loss. They just didn't have the luxury because mm-hmm. the religious contribution was more active in this area, and uh, there wasn't the mass influx of information that people I, I know myself, I find it very difficult to keep up with the onslaught. Oh, yeah. right? mm-hmm. The onslaught, it, it seems to me to be bordering on the absurd, <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Now, in the 1860s, that wasn't an issue. Also, you had uh, people, I think, were more accepting of authority figures mm-hmm. back those days. The undertaker did this, and there was not deference, but there was a acceptance mm-hmm. of that, more so yeah. than what you see today. But no question, the Civil War changed a lot when it came to how Americans cared for their dead. And I'll give you another example of this. For instance, sometimes people have asked me why they close the bottom lid of caskets, right? Why would they do that? Well, that came from the Civil War because there were so many legs amputated. And they'd send the bodies back, and the parents of the families of these poor soldiers would just really have a A very difficult time with that. And so the funeral directors of the time— decided to put the transfers cut in the lid and shut the bottom, and um, and it made—and we're still doing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's been around, well, 150 years. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So you see some of these uh, customs are still—they resonate from the war. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I guess the whole—and um, I've noticed uh, some of the photographs we have, there are all kinds of different coffins, I guess. There's iron and wood and, yeah. and all kinds of—it's yeah. amazing that— they tried. They tried everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I don't want to sound flippant here, but there's just so much you can do with a box. <laughs> yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. So the coffins, you know, they went to cast iron. That was called the Fisk burial case, hmm. and that's what we think James K. Polk and Andrew Jackson were buried in. Was a Fisk burial case. You still see some in museums, mm-hmm. and then they even tried terracotta. Terracotta. Terracotta, right? But ultimately, by far, it was wood. Wood. It Mm -hmm. was wood, Mm -hmm. right? And then after the Civil War, which is, I think, just vintage American, you remember the old line that Henry Ford said, you know, you can get any car in any color you want as long as it's black. Black. 
Same thing with caskets. Huh. Really? During the war, these were pretty much rough boxes, mm-hmm. right? The casket. But then after yeah. the war, they came up with this idea that you could color cloth. You could make cloth hmm. into 5,000 different colors. And that's what they started to put on caskets because families would come in and they would say, I don't like this color. I don't like just, you know, just this American yeah, yeah. choice, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Went to Kroger's the other night, counted 39 different <laughs> dog foods. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so the funeral directors of the country, you know, they created these choices, but it emanated off of the, of the war. That's really fascinating. So really, um, you know, in so many ways, the Civil War was such a watershed for the United States. And even in this, too, you know, it seems like oh, yeah. so many things changed. <clears throat> chemical embalming and, and all well, kinds of things. The other, the other result of the war in our profession <laughs> was the question was, what did these uh, embalming surgeons do after the war was over? Right? The war yeah. was mm-hmm. over. Nobody, you know, there wasn't 5,000 <laughs> 5, casualties here. Yeah. And so— they went out and started embalming schools. Hmm. So hmm. the Cincinnati College it was started in 1882 by a Civil War embalmer. You had the uh, Warsham College in Chicago was started by a Civil War embalmer. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they moved from actually doing it mm-hmm. to then teaching it to because teach. the need. Because once it was set in the culture, right, that you could have a, a decedent mm-hmm. at a funeral that was not offensive. Yeah. Then yeah. the public responded. It just blossomed after that. You know, that's fascinating. What the, there's only Gupton in Tennessee, Gupton School of... Yeah, they've opened community? a new school in Memphis oh, hey, in a okay. community mm-hmm. college, but that's just started now. I see. I yeah, see. but for, for 75 years, Gupton's was, Gupton has been it. was it. Right, right. That's fascinating. That's yeah. Fascinating. And you've taught there a good while, I guess. Well, about four years. About four years? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I uh, had been president of some other schools over my career and operated funeral homes and cemeteries, mm-hmm. but then decided to come here. And, mm-hmm. and my mm-hmm. wife works at a live hospice. Oh, okay. You know, she's yeah. one of the yeah. clinical people over there. That's a great That's a great thing to do. Yeah. So I was curious about during the war. So, you know, officers, that's kind of obvious. Yes. And then some, some soldiers it would be. Between African American and white soldiers, I guess uh, I guess a lot of this depends on your resources. You know what kind of money you had, but sure, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. The uh, infantrymen, mm-hmm. regardless of their color, mm-hmm. were probably mostly going to be relegated to what we call the national cemetery, now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. right? And the, of course, identification was near impossible unless you had clear identifying marks on a uniform, but the average infantryman. So if you go to Gettysburg or Antietam or Shiloh or any of the National Civil War cemeteries, you're going to see a plethora of unknown. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, we just, they just didn't. And actually, though, the Civil War had improved markedly from the Revolutionary War, (laughs) right? Because they, they buried you where you died. You know, there was no, no. disinterments. There was no. And so they used, at that time, what's called trench burial, hmm. was where 50 would be buried together buried. at a mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. and without a cask- yeah, coffin or right. that, you know. Right. So by the time the Civil War started up. But 
What I always found interesting was people would talk to me in my classes about death denial. Uh, death denial is not a contemporary emotional mm-hmm. state. Really? Okay. Right? Because mm-hmm. here's a good example of death denial. When the Civil War started, there were no provisions on either side for care of the dead hmm. because they didn't think anybody was going to get killed. <laughs> now, that is the, I think, the, yeah. the paramount example of death denial. Because four years later, you had these hundreds of thousands of uh, casualties, you know. So It's always uh, somebody else, you know. Well, and, you know, they scrambled on it. But I have often wondered, I really have, uh, Lincoln and uh, Jefferson Davis, in my study, had two things in common. They both were from Kentucky, Hmm. and they both had sons die in the war. Hmm. Evan Davis fell off the... Uh, retaining wall at the Confederate White House in Richmond, and he was killed. He was uh, about eight years old, and Willie Lincoln died. So you had, and I and I've watched this evolution during the war mm-hmm. as to how much attention, and it's a fairly, I think, predictable psychology that until it happens to you, <laughs> right, it right. can be right. kept at a distance. Mm-hmm. But when it comes into your own living room, then yeah. something's going to yeah. change. You know, that's fascinating. And just thinking about what you said, there's so many casualties. You know, this was the, the biggest war we'd ever had. And right. so there's so many people. And it's interesting that it started both with the president of the United States and the president of the Confederacy. They both had a very personal encounter yes. with death. Right. You know? And so it kind of went down from there right. as far as, especially through the federal system, you know. Well, for as aloof and as prickly a personality as the history books describe Jefferson Davis, I found him not to be that way at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe with generals he wasn't all that, uh, yeah, but still. that cooperative. But mm-hmm. he had a bereavement, a significant—his first wife, they'd only been married 90 days when she died. Oh, really? And she was the daughter of the president of the United States— Jefferson Davis's first wife was Zachary Taylor's daughter. Zachary Taylor's daughter. Yes, and Jefferson Davis had served under him in the Mexican War. And so I watched uh, in my study of Davis, right, I found it very difficult and unfair to study Lincoln and not Davis. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right, because right. these right. two men were seminal figures. And so I watched that, and I always felt my conclusions was that that early bereavement made Davis sensitive to hmm. the realities of loss. Yeah. So it really was as tight as those two men were as far as families. It really was a, a family struggle oh, yeah, you know, sure. between, for the whole United States. Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. And have all that go on. And, you know, it's interesting when you talk because that day and age, you know, death was really a part of, well, a part of living, I guess, because it happened all the time and happened earlier. But to have this war come along with such... Huge. Nobody figured it would last that long. Nobody right. figured there'd be right. that many casualties. Right. And all of a sudden, here you are four years later and, you know, right. tens of thousands. Right. You know, I can see yeah. how that would make a big difference. Well, it did. Yeah. It changed It changed everything. Yeah. And, you know, when I look at the assessment of it, it, again, I think provided a good roadmap for the participatory mm-hmm. education of the public yeah. about the value of rituals and ceremonies mm-hmm. when life rites of passage happen. And I think I believe we've distanced ourselves from that, Mm -hmm. that the culture is, it moves so fast and 
the emphasis is almost on living a carefree life, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so when death occurs, um, as a funeral director, I've personally felt very, very bad for individuals who get captured. They get caught in this and they're ill-prepared for it, right? They've not given it much thought, you know. I mean, your career has been, it's been a long career. I guess you've seen pretty much the whole spectrum of that, you know, as far as something uh, really cherished all the way down to, oh, well, you know. So it's really fascinating how people react. And I think the more we get distanced from living our lives, you know, the, the well, you have, be, um, you, know. you have uh, the secularization of society. The Pew Research is constantly coming out with new data about religious participation, and that those numbers aren't particularly encouraging at times. Then you also have this thing of the dysfunctional family. Mm-hmm. And those are things that in the American Civil War, Families may well have been torn apart politically and through the battles and the stresses of it, but you didn't have a 54% divorce rate right, right. in 1862, right, right? right? And the church was, you know, strong in that. So they all had their cross to bear in a way, right? <laughs> in a way they did, you yeah, know? Yeah, you know? Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. Was embalming, and it seems like over the years that cremation has been in there somewhere, but I don't guess this was possible during the Civil No, it, War. it was not, actually. Yeah. And the reason was very practical. They could not generate enough heat. Enough heat. And there were some pioneers, hmm. right, that mm-hmm. tried it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Lemoyne in um, Washington, Pennsylvania, built the first crematory, and he built it for himself. <laughs> Okay, he was somewhat of a free thinker. Yeah. I think people in Washington, Pennsylvania thought he was <laughs> kook. Yeah. And it didn't work very well, mm-hmm. right, because they couldn't generate enough heat. Also, you had the strong presence of religious conviction of fire is associated with oh, hell. Yeah, I thought of that. And then also you had, out of Corinthians, Paul's admonition, the bodily resurrection. So they weren't separating the spirit and the body. I see. Now, Plato did that, Mm -hmm. right? He's the one that came up with the body's meaningless. But Christians didn't do that. Now, I'm not saying if someone's selected that, that it's an error in judgment. But back then, you had these social prohibitions against it, and you had practical prohibitions against it. So, and I'm glad you brought the cremation thing up. If you look at cremation, that it's it's fast and it's done without much fuss. Mm-hmm. And once it's done, it's done. And you can do what you want to with the cremated remains. Mm-hmm. That reflects kind of how we've lived our lives now, that it's fast. We don't have to have a lot of paperwork or, yeah. you know— and so you, you see this, and I'm not endorsing it or criticizing it, right? It's just, no, it's just an observation, it, yeah. As I yeah. said when we started, people are going to care for their dead in a consistent manner with how they live their life. And so we have this uh, we want it now mm-hmm. mentality, which 
you know, in my life hasn't worked very well. When I want something right now, usually I have to wait for yeah, some exactly. stuff. <laughs> and then with dysfunctional families, you have families that haven't been together for years. Um, and so it's a different, it's a new day. Mm-hmm. It's a new yeah. day out there. But uh, I go back to the embalming. When the war started, the epicenter before the war, mm-hmm. in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, mm-hmm. the epicenter of embalming, of chemical embalming in the United States was Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C.? Yes, that's where the concentration of embalmers were at. Uh, New York didn't have them. Boston didn't have them. Philadelphia didn't have them. But Washington had a group of them. And the reason was, was because you couldn't cremate a body, Washington was the center of foreign dignitaries, foreign visitors, Ah. ambassadors, Mm -hmm. diplomats, couriers of state papers, and they would have a heart attack or they would get in a buggy accident. And the body needed to go back to Spain then what do you do? Yeah. for a state funeral in the cathedral. Mm-hmm. And so the embalmers f- focused on that. And that's why, that's why Abraham Lincoln had access to an embalmer when his son died. If that had happened in Philadelphia, that would not have occurred. You know, that's fascinating because I always saw Washington as, as a fairly pretty small town until after yeah. the Civil War. And yeah. so I was just curious as to how— all these people would wind up in Washington, but that makes a lot of sense. That yeah. they're all the the yeah. center of our power, you know, with yeah. all the other foreign dignitaries there, you know, and, and that's pretty interesting. So, yeah, they, they would be involved and then sent back home to wherever, yeah. and that could be— And they'd be yeah. put on a ship and taken mm-hmm. back to England. There was a Dutch ambassador, I can't remember his name, he was in the program, in my PowerPoint program. And he died in Washington. He got some dreaded disease, you know, diphtheria, some ancient mm-hmm. disease that we don't hear about anymore. And heavens, you know, the Washington Post had a big spread, and they had their illustrators doing uh, the hearse going down <laughs> Pennsylvania. It was big, big stuff, Incredible. you know. Yeah. Yeah, it was big stuff. And it's fascinating because a, a trip might take a month. And so, uh, yeah, two exactly. months, you know, so exactly. yeah, I can, the, it seemed like the time is factoring in again, as you've talked before, you know, I've got a yeah. book in my library called modern funeral service mm-hmm. and it was written in 1900. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So 118 years ago, and it's got a whole chapter on how to get a body across the Atlantic Ocean. How about that? Didn't yeah. include the Pacific Ocean because that, that was just <laughs> That's probably, impossible, yeah. that was impossible. <laughs> that was like going to the moon, you know. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. I have to say this, you know, uh, people all my career have asked me, how can you stand to do what you do? Mm-hmm. And I have to say this with all candor. I haven't done days work in my life. It's uh-huh. been fascinating. What you enjoy. Yeah, it seems. You know, Hemingway said that if a man's life is truly told, it's a novel. <laughs> and it's I have to say cool. this, uh, as a funeral director, I've never heard the same story. How about that? You know, that's pretty amazing given the time you've been a director, and it's, it's fascinating, yeah. Yeah, I've, I, yeah. every time I sat down with the family, mm-hmm. what I heard was entirely oh, new. Yeah, yeah. Right? That could be a book right there. You know, it could be a it book. Sure could be. Yeah, sure could, be. could be a book. Yeah. Yep. Well, listen, we appreciate you being here today, and I thank you for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating having you, and I would like to have you back if you 
uh, want to come back at some future point and talk about some of these other aspects, it'd be fascinating to have you. So I'm always at your service. Right. Ken. <laughs> We'd love to have you All here. Right. Thank you for being here and thank you for listening. And I appreciate it. Y'all have a good day. Thank you. Thank you.